Hey everyone, it's Ben. Thanks for tuning in. Just want to say your listeners are a huge, huge part of keeping this going. The feedback that we get is great. The things that we're seeing on Twitter are amazing. The stuff we see on Facebook is really appreciated. Like that feedback, that interaction is great for us. And it helps provide us an idea of where we're being useful and providing ideas for new shows down the road. If you want to, you can help us up by leaving reviews on Stitcher and iTunes. And finally, if you're able to and want to, you can support the show financially at patreon.com slash the Hydean way. Thank you, and now on to the show. Finally strolling down to the engineering section of the pergola, I come across my two chief engineers arguing. Chief, the hypermatter igniter says it's burnt out again. What's going on that we've gone through three of them? The problem here is that the so-called engineer believes that you can take out whole sections of the igniter without any consequences. Oh, I'm sorry if you're used to working in such posh conditions that you can have redundancies on every system, but in this outfit, we have to scavenge where we can. Those parts are needed elsewhere. And maybe they wouldn't be if you didn't do such a slapshot job of every other repair on this ship. And maybe I'd be able to do better work... If you weren't so and slow, is it those cheap imperial tools you're using, or just your daft imperial head? This is going to be an episode about small problems on this tale from the Hydean Way. I'm your host, Bing Yendel. With special guest, Chris Ng. This week, we have as a guest, Chris from Silhouette Zero, which is a really funny podcast that I think that all of our listeners should at least check out. The adventures of the crew of the Spice Wolf is just really fun. Oh, thanks. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Please tell our listeners a bit about the idea that you had for Silhouette Zero and some of the unique things that have come up because of it. Sure. So Silhouette Zero is a live play, actual play podcast that is focused mostly on Edge of the Empire, although we dip our toe into Age of Rebellion here and there. And I guess the most unique thing about it is that there are only two people involved. It's just me as the GM and my brother as the player. And somehow we make it work. There's a lot of vocal effects and a lot of strange accents. But I guess the the biggest comment I get about being two people is the phrase, I didn't think it would work with two people, but it does. (laughs) I do kind of feel I should add my voice to that general call because what you're doing would intimidate me to no end. (laughs) Like, just having a player? Wow. Let me contextualize this for a little bit because I feel like sometimes people go, oh, that's so innovative or that was brave. And really what it boils down to is I don't have any friends. I just have my brother who I can boss around because he's the younger brother. (laughs) And I guess to, to give a little backstory, I'll, I'll keep it brief, but uh, I haven't been playing role-playing games very long. I've only been playing since about 2015, so I guess I'm up on two years now. And I was researching them mostly because prior to being a podcaster, I was a, a writer, a novelist. I was about to have my first kid. My first one was born in 2012. And so I knew my time for writing was going to be greatly hindered. So 
couple years into having this kid and realizing, yes, my time was greatly hindered, I, I came across <laughs> these articles online about people writing their D&D stories. The recordings, I, there's the famous one, like Sir Barrington. Okay, the, yeah. Yeah, the bear who had high charisma and faked his way being a bear for his entire campaign. I read another one about six barbarians who just ruined the GM's life because he had this <laughs> intricate tale of magic and they were all too stupid to figure it out kind of thing. <laughs> I never played a role-playing game, so to me I was like, well, aren't there dice? Aren't things randomized? How could you tell a coherent story if things were randomized? So it kind of got me onto researching the topic. As I started reading them, I started listening to podcasts about people playing them. I came across, I think it was One Shot. Mm-hmm. And then that was kind of the imprint on how you play them, even though that's not how most people play them, apparently. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's really fun and interesting. I wish I could try that out. But if you read most RPG books, they say for one GM and two to four or five players. Yeah. And I went, oh, I don't have two to four or five players. Because the reality was, like, I got my day job as a teacher, so it takes a lot of time. Um mm. At the time, I had two kids. I had a one-and-a-half-year-old and a newborn. A lot of my, you know, long-time friends have all moved far, far away, and that was just not, like, looking like an option. I didn't even know you could play. You know, <laughs> I didn't know about Roll20 or any of that kind of stuff. What it came down to was I just found the first one that you was billed as a two-player game, which was Microscope. Okay. Which is not really even a role-playing game. It's more like a world-building exercise. But I bought it, and I, I got my brother, and I said, let's try this out, because we both grew up in the L.A. area. He moved to San Diego. I moved north to Ventura County. And so in order to try to keep a connection going, we had, like, this weekly video game night. Every Friday, we would play something like Civilization or, or something like that. And so I was like, well, let's break up video game night. Let's just try this microscope game. And we liked it. And so I just went, well... Because at this point, I had I'd gone through a lot of one-shot episodes. I found campaign, <laughs> and I really wanted to try the Star Wars thing. And I was like, mm-hmm. it doesn't say two players. I don't know if we can do this. I'm just going to do it anyway. We're just going to try. I have to give a shout-out to my buddy, Jeff Stormer, who does a podcast called Party of One, where his entire show is dedicated to hacking existing systems or showcasing two-player systems okay so, like, the whole show is him either gming or getting gm'd by one other person and showing like well how do you play D or dungeon crawl classics or pathfinder how do you do that with just one person so that's kind of the whole deal for a show and that didn't exist when i was looking this up and i've told him a bunch of times because i've been on a show and I've told them a lot of times, like, I wish you had existed because it would have given me the confidence <laughs> to just do it. But it was just me and my brother. And we just we did a whole campaign with Edge of the Empire and we massacred those rules, man. <laughs> we just massacred them. And it was just me like trying to figure it out. We had a plethora of GM PCs, essentially, because I, to me... Oh. I, I couldn't really understand the game until I either one of us had to have played every single job class. Mm-hmm. So when we started, we had the Edge Core book. I don't even think Force and Destiny was published yet. <laughs> and so we started with he was a Gand bounty hunter. Okay. We came up with he, he the droid Kobe, actually, who's in our show now, was created for him there. And then I made a Fringer. 
and a bodyguard and a pilot and a politico. And then I found it, you know, I got Age of Rebellion. <laughs> we had an infiltrator and it, it just went like in an insane amount of people just so I could see every edge of how this game was supposed to work. And we had a lot of fun. It was a crazy campaign and it, it concluded on a really interesting note. And, and I've, I've often wished we had recorded it because it was just kind of a really interesting, unique story because it, it was a Gand who, and then we found out like force sensitivity rules, but then rules <laughs> for something like 4C didn't exist yet. So we had to in- invent them. <laughs> uh, and the, just the role rules we had were so crazy. Like he had to be in, cause he was, his background was a Gand Feinsman. Okay. So we had this whole thing where he had jury-rigged a room of his ship to have methane clouds. So if he was going to be in the future, he had to sit in the clouds. And then for every, like, mental thing he added, it was a blue. But for every, like, additional detail he wanted, it was a black. And it was a perception roll against, like, a base difficulty set by how far in the future he wanted. Like, it was crazy. (laughs) It made no sense compared to the sort of straightforward rule of, hey, roll a light side, dark side, and, and then go with that. Well, it's what worked for you at the time. And I think like that sort of gave, just sort of that endless experimentation just gave me, I'm, I'm a typically fairly fearless person anyway. I, I typically take a lot of risks with stuff like that. So I just went, so when it comes to the, the story of the podcast, it, it basically boils down to this. I was listening to campaign and uh, I still listen to campaign. I enjoy it. But it's a little silly. Like, it wasn't scratching an itch that I, I had. And Dice for Brains didn't exist yet. Yeah. I think he and I actually started around the same time. So I I said, well, my college degree was in music. I know how to run audio <laughs> equipment. I could do this. To so my brother, I went, hey, I want to do an actual play podcast. And he said, no. Reasonable. <laughs> and then I said, please... And he went, if we do it, I'm not going to help you with anything. That has been the agreement ever since. <laughs> he shows up to play. He hits record. He sends me his file. That's it. He will do nothing else. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. And, and so everything else is, is kind of on my end. I do the editing, the uploading, the media. That's fine. I enjoy all that part of it. The podcast that you've put out is very enjoyable. Oh, thank you. Oh, man. I'm just cresting episode 10 at this point. Uh-huh. But I'm coming to it a bit on the late side, uh, considering was it Christine and Leslie started out roughly at the same time and are now completely finished it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know Christine had finished. Yeah, I didn't know she had, she had caught up. I think she has. If not, she's really close. It's one of those kind of like Dice for Brains. It's a very addictive show because you have so much character development going on with it listening to it you can tell that you and your brother are having so much fun with it and i'm a rules lawyer yeah so i'm always listening to the gm calls that you're making and they're reasonable calls even when you're sort of doing things flying completely by the seat of your pants you're making calls that i would probably be making myself so (laughs) well thank you some of the more comedic like just out there podcasts they're going more for the narrative ahead of the rules and right it feels like you and matt keep silhouette zero grounded in the rules but still going for the absolute fun that you two have yeah i think and and it's funny you mentioned that because i play the same game that same like 
Especially with a system like this where you get to set the difficulty. Mm-hmm. I've told Ross this too for from Dice for Brains. Like, you know, like right before he says his difficulty, even because I listen a lot in the car, I will out loud mm-hmm. and be like, two reds and a purple. <laughs> and see like <laughs> if they're, if they're going to match up, especially with Ross, I'm like, give him a black. Give him a black, <laughs> Ross. Like, come on. <laughs> Speaking of Dice for Brains, I'm usually either going, yeah, give him a setback. Or upgrade it. Like, you've got these dark side points, upgrade it. He's a very benevolent GM for his difficulty. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we love this game, I think is what it comes down to. We love failure results. Yeah. In fact, like, it's our favorite stuff, the despair triumphs. We love that. Oftentimes, like, because Silhouette Zero, episodes 1 through 50 have been recorded for a long time. And I've said this a lot. Like, it just got, especially, like, the first, I think it was, like, 15 or 20 episodes, the the release schedule was just out of control. And that was because I was having my third kid, and I was moving, and (laughs) it just, like, it just fell on the back burner. And I think we went, like, two months without updating. And so there's, we've just got this massive backlog. But we still play pretty much every Friday, so we've played ton of games we played ryutama which is like a favorite of ours okay we've done 13th age we were just kind of messing around with blades in the dark we've done legends of the five rings <laughs> numenera i mean we've done a ton of them but like, we just we can always come back to man why isn't every game as good as the fantasy flight star wars game because it's just yeah. like the results are just fun so i don't feel the need to throw the rule book out as hard with this game because I feel like the results are force you in such interesting narrative directions anyway. I absolutely agree. It's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to Genesis whenever it comes out. We are definitely too, uh, because there are several settings that we love, but we can't stand the game. Or uh, at least it doesn't work for two people, like Mouse Guard. (laughs) Uh, We love the idea of Mouse Guard, but the rules... It's not meant for the type of role-playing we like to do. Yeah. It's more like roll all your dice results, record them down, and then like figure out the story that came from it, rather than roll, narrate, roll, narrate. The thing that I really like about the Fantasy Flight one is you can do that, but you can also just start thinking from Heroes with Brent. Like, he kind of does that with his roles. Yes. Where he'll take a look at this particular boost die that I got from aiming, came up with the success that actually allowed me to hit. So the narration comes from that. Yes, and I, I that's something... I think I even commented on an episode. It's not something I ever really thought to do before, and it's something I really want to incorporate more of because I think it's just an interesting like extra layer of possible description and influence. It absolutely is, but what you're talking about with going from narrate, role, narrate, role... And being able to sort of bounce so quickly. Yeah. And go in so many weird directions. That's the thing that keeps me in this system. Yeah, for sure. Out of curiosity, for things that Genesis could be going with, is there any sort of setting that you'd like to try out with it? This has been, this has been bigger news to me than I think I've, I've led on to anybody, actually. (laughs) I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a scoop. I haven't told anybody this. Silhouette Zero has kind of got a shelf life to it. And really, this is where it comes down to, like, why why is Silhouette Zero, like, why is it called that? Well, it's because of the size classification, right? It's Silhouette mm-hmm. Zero is anything smaller than human size. And so yeah. I just like the sound of those two words next to each other. And I had, 
even as our first campaign was wrapping up, even before we decided to do the show, I had a bunch of ideas for like, how do you direct the next campaign? Because the first one we had called the Feinsman because it was about a Garen Feinsman. Makes sense. So I had a couple of ideas. I had Silhouette Zero. I said, what if all the characters were short? Because that's funny. Mm-hmm. I had Green Squadron, which would have been a Age of Rebellion campaign where all the characters had green skin. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I, I had a couple more. I don't remember where they are. But the Silhouette Zero was the one I, I liked the most. I thought it had just the rhythm of that name is so good. But Click's story, and Click is the, the main character, uh, which is the one that plays, it really only has three acts to it. Season one will conclude with episode 50. We're going to start recording season two very soon. And then after that, there's a season three I have in mind, and that's it. I don't have anything else in mind for Click in general. I don't think there's more story there. There could be, but I would personally, as a storyteller, feel it was too forced. I, I'm very much a fan of sort of British yeah. style of television making, where it's like, leave you wanting more rather than <laughs> overdoing it. Like, <laughs> American style, like 85 seasons with 9,000 episodes. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah, so the announcement of Genesis, for me, made it interesting because it's the possibility of maybe the show going on past three seasons. Oh, pretty good point, yeah. Yeah, we could still keep the, the, the name Silhouette Zero, but we could move it into a setting other than that. And I think the ones we were, we were thinking about, I think the ones we love the most, Matt's a huge fan of Dishonored. Okay, yeah. Um, which is why we were playing Blades in the Dark, so... I've been toying around like what we could build a, a world there. Um, I mentioned before we're huge fans of Mouse Guard. Matt loved uh, the Redwall books growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we just like the idea. And again, like tiny people, big things. Like I don't know for some reason we we find that amusing. I maybe it's because <laughs> we're both so tall. I'm six two. He's six one. So it's like I don't know. <laughs> like super escapism for us. You know I don't know. Warhammer, like the 40k universe is really interesting to us, but the role-playing system is just <laughs> barbaric. We tried to play Dark Heresy, and I don't know, it was... <laughs> yeah, I I totally understand what you're meaning with it. It's one of those systems where you really need to have someone come in and show you it, to show you what it can do. Right. Because... Just sort of trying to poke at it. I'm certain after some experience, sure, you could get it up and running and making sense, but I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I need a party to figure out how to play it. Yeah. And I, I was at the part where I was looking up, like, is there a way I could write, like, program that would do these dice rolls for me? <laughs> Cause I don't know how, how this works. That jumps out at me as my own f- desired setting for Genesis. Yeah, I am so looking forward to Android in Genesis mm. because I love Shadowrun. I cannot stand the new version of the rules because to me, it plays so much better as a video game than me trying to do these in-depth roles for Minutia. I think we'll probably in the off season toy around with... uh you know, some different settings. Once the, I'm really excited for the rule book to come out. I mean, you know, I have all sorts of notes in my notebooks about how we were, I was going to homebrew basically all of those settings I've talked about. Like, well, okay, well, let's just convert <laughs> it to Fantasy Flight game. More so than the preset settings, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to the advice that it gives. Mm. 
and like how to deal with certain mechanical choices. And I think we talked about it before. Like, is there still going to be light side, dark side points? Because that's, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite aspects of the system. So we'll see. I'm excited about it. It's going to be very, very interesting to see and how that sort of mechanic is that mechanic still going to be there and how is it going to be doled out? Yeah, because I, I hope it, does, it doesn't do like a fate point economy style because I feel like it's, you know, it's the <laughs> same with like the GM intrusion from Numenera. It's like, it feels a little bit too much like you're sacrificing something, you know, to have to get those points and then the benefit you get from them is like not... I see what you're saying. You know, almost every other game I've run that wasn't in this system, and I have moved on to GMing more than one person. <laughs> it, it just feels like I wish, I, I just kind of wish I just imported the light side, dark side system. Because it's just like, it it makes everybody feel comfortable taking narrative control. You're absolutely right. And it, it's fair. It's like, I really need a car to be here. Well, in most other games, it's like, well, what do you do? You flip a coin, or you roll odd or even, or you, you but it's like, no, in this system, I have a point to spend it. I'm going to spend it. There's a car. Mm-hmm. And the GM now gets an equitable exchange for that. And I, I just, I like it. And I hope it, if it's not around in Genesis, I will probably put it in anyway, because. I got to say, I probably will too. It's, <laughs> we've only had one announcement at the point of this recording. Hopefully there's another one by the time this airs, but. Mm-hmm. Just taking a look at the dice pack, and is there anything that can be gleaned from there? Yeah. It certainly could be. It could be something along the lines of pseudo-fate point-ish, where the party gets a pool that's determined by the amount of players that are there, so it doesn't grow to silly expectations of like having a 10-point pool, which just seems to be excessive. Mm-hmm. At least with, like, Heroes and the other games, it seems like the smaller the pool, the more it's used. I feel in Heroes, there's a lot of tension about using it. Like, it feels like a big deal to use them because there are so few points. For Silhouette Zero, and I guess this is a GM advice show, so I should give some GM advice. (laughs) For two-player games, I usually actually have him roll one force die for every major character. And not just for himself. I mean, that makes sense. Because otherwise you'd end up with like two points, right? Exactly. And that makes a huge amount of sense. Right. So what I do is, in Silhouette Zero, for those of you who haven't listened, Matt, my brother, is the official player character. He has Con Click Track, a Chadra fan pilot. And then (laughs) my typical advice for people wanting to run Fantasy Flight with only two people is that everyone needs to have a droid. Hmm. Not only to fill in the the blank spots of your player's skills, because, you know, one thing that isn't very forgiving about Fantasy Flight games is that if if it's not in your job class, it's kind of hard to round yourself out. True. So if you've made a pilot, for example, it's hard to be good at other things than piloting. So I always suggest, you know, hey, make a droid of some sort to fill in those gaps. So in this case... Click has Kobe and Astromech. He occupies a weird space where both he and I use him. I don't know how to describe it. Most of the time, Kobe is controlled by him, but every once in a while, I control him to do something. And most of the time, nobody really argued. Well, actually, no one has ever argued about it because having already used the whole campaign with Kobe, we get how Kobe thinks. He's sort of this chaotic force. 
kind of chopper-ish from Star Wars Rebels, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we often joke that because this was established in the first campaign, Kobe has a very long and mysterious past. Uh, we don't know what he's done before. <laughs> he just seems to know stuff for some reason. Uh, we kind of joke that Silhouette Zero is just like a side quest for Kobe's grand adventure. Like, <laughs> like He's just decided, I'm going to hang out with these short guys for a while, and then he'll probably leave at some point and go do something else. So he's sort of an <laughs> anti-R2, whereas R2 is like loyal to a fault. Kobe does whatever the heck he wants. If you want to see kind of a different example of that, again, like Jeff Stormer, Party of One, we did a couple of Age of Rebellion sessions where I GM'd, and I gave him the same advice. And he created a Boffin spy. Okay. As a result, he had, like, no combat skills. So he made a security droid that walked around with him to fill in the blank of the, of the combat checks. Nice. So I feel like that's the approach you have to do. I s- personally feel that you need more than that so you have to create mm-hmm. a bunch of npcs or gm pcs which i know like in the rpg community is like <gasps> you can't do that you never can do that um <laughs> which i've never really understood i mean at, at first i was like you know especially when i was first looking into well can you just can a gm just make players and then the the advice across the internet is no you cannot and i've read the horror stories about how they steal a spotlight or they make a player irrelevant or it becomes like they're narrating a novel, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I knew like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. I knew I wasn't going to do that. So for Silhouette Zero, I, I really just kind of rounded out the rest of the party, you know, especially since pilots, I think, suffer maybe the most for being over-specialized. <laughs> you know, they're good at piloting. And then sometimes they're good at mechanics. They're usually pretty good shots just by raw agility, if not like, you know, specialization or talent. But other than that, they're not going to do much. And so I, I created the rest of the, of the crew of the Spice Wolf kind of around, okay, how am I going to fill in that blank? And so I, I settled on three. Captain Reyna is a traitor. Tazi is a Jawa who is a outlaw tech. And then Jinko is a thief. And I figured mm-hmm. that between all, all of that, it was going to cover most skills in some way. And the way I, I make sure that the player still has agency is I ask Matt what everyone's doing. Okay. So a given situation, I'll say, all right, well, you're coming up to the tavern or the cantina. What's Jinko going to do? Mm-hmm. And, and he says, well, Jinko's probably trying to pick some pockets. I'm like, great. What's Tazi doing? Tazi's probably uh, looking around for spare parts. Fine. What's Reyna doing? Or is Reyna taking the lead in this negotiation? Or is Click Click taking the lead? And so even though I might be doing the acting, I might be using those skills, he's making all the decisions. And I've mm-hmm. often compared it to Mass Effect. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you've played Mass Effect, you have Shepard, who you control all the actions of. And then even in combat situations... You have two party members that you selected, but you don't, or you can't micromanage their combat actions. Like, you can't take <laughs> their control and, you know, aim for them. You can command them to use specific skills at specific moments. True. You can give them general tactical commands, but that's it. I kind of liken it to that. It's like, okay, you've got your main character, and then you've got these other characters that exist that I, were created by the GM, but you're still sort of in control. So tell me, like, tactically what you want them to do. 
but Matt doesn't have the bookkeeping responsibility of like upgrading all of their like spending all their XP. I do all of that. Okay. Because each of them it is actually a fully statted player character. They have full sheets and everything. And then I, I typically tell him, like, look, I based on the story, that's how their experience is being spent. So we have a custom skill in in the game called music. It's a present skill. <laughs> Yes, and that's yes. just that's just for Tazi because Tazi is a musician. She's an outlaw tech, but she really deep down her dream is to be a musician. So there are a bunch of missions, and I think you've probably heard them, where like they just interacted with a lot of musicians, mm-hmm. and so all of her XP went into music. And <laughs> it's a useless thing for the game, but you know what? That's what she was doing, so that's what she gets. And Matt was like, "Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I want you to do." You know, so that's that's sort of the balance here is that he makes decisions. And in fact, one of the other pieces of advice I'll, I'll give is that I let him do the roles, too. Okay. You know, I have the sheets. So I'll say, well, all right, these stormtroopers are coming up. Matt, what do you think is going to happen? And he'll say, well, I think Jinko is going to shoot the closest one. And I'll say, great, roll it for me. His light range is two yellow and a green. Yeah, this pulls double duty. It gives him something to do, and it gives me less to do because i'm already (laughs) tracking six people's wound threshold and their positions and all that stuff one less thing for me to have to sit there and calculate the roles it it just feels better for all of us i still roll the enemy npcs because i feel like it helps i don't know it just feels right like oh i'm gonna use the bad guys and you're gonna use the good guys sort of division but I think like all those little tips really makes it feel like even though they only have one character, they're still doing a lot. All of the different tips that you've got, some of it probably is to editing, but I didn't notice that as I was listening. Mm. Some of Silhouette Zero has been, it almost has felt like two people playing and then every now and then you step back and have to be the GM. Mm. Well, so much of Silhouette Zero or any live play is how the characters are acting. So yeah, Matt may be doing the uh, initial bit of, okay, well, Jinko's going off and doing this, but then there's still how Jinko's doing it, which you're narrating. Mm-hmm. And since the what is been taken care of and you're playing with the how, it almost feels like from the outsider point of view, to me, it feels like two people playing and then the meta stuff is happening otherwise Mm, that's interesting that's the thing that's really drawn me to silhouette zero yeah it's interesting i don't even know how i do it like it does sometimes (laughs) when i'm hearing jinko and tazi argue i'm like how am i keeping all that straight in my head i have no idea (laughs) but it does feel like two people arguing Yeah, no, it absolutely does. After I've gone through and put the vocal effects on Tazi, so, you know, one doesn't even sound like my voice, I'm like, how did I do that? I don't, I don't know. (laughs) You know, everybody plays RPGs for different reasons. We've had this conversation before. So, you know, there are people that love tactical play. They love positioning and aiming. And I think you were, it was your episode with Ross where you, you had a group of players that Mark down where they hit their blaster bolts so they can scavenge like pieces of stormtrooper <laughs> armor yeah. that haven't been hit because we wrote it down. For me, I-, I like to play role playing games because I like the story. For me, the rules protect the story. So when a rule doesn't protect the story, I throw it out or I change it. The idea that you can't be the GM PCs, you can't have NPCs give so much advice, it's, you know, quote unquote railroading. I've just never found that to be true. 
you know, again, with the Mass Effect example, I feel like when Click goes around the ship to talk to everybody about what they should do next, it's like going around in Mass Effect. Everybody's got a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I plan that ahead. Sometimes I just, at this point, I know the characters well enough to know what they would say. Tazi has been referred to as Silhouette Zero Piglet. You know, she's anxiety ridden. She doesn't want to take risks. She cares deeply about everyone and doesn't want anyone to get hurt. And so all of her suggestions are going to be pretty safe. Jinko is always going to suggest we steal something. Oh, yeah. You know, he's getting to get this different input and then he's going to pick the decision that he does. And I talked earlier that as a, as a novelist, I find randomization interesting because it's forcing you to write things that you wouldn't normally pick. Really, the biggest piece of randomization for me is Matt. Exactly. From any sort of GM, the true randomizers are, are the players. Yes. To take a tiny bit of a sidestep, doing dead in the water. Like, there's a actual set railroad path on where to direct players if they've got no idea on where to go. They'll get to the end of the Shadow Raptor one way or the other. Right. The best part is when the players have agency and are able to do what they want. Yeah. You guys and heroes completely, for the most part, throwing out the line of where you're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. I guess that's true for every every situation is that, you know, the player's the greatest randomizer. I It's a little bit unique for me and Matt. Uh, we've been <laughs> close for so long. We know how to play off each other, but we still surprise each other, which I think is what, what makes it work. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever want to run a two-player game? I think there's a couple reasons. It's kind of an intimate experience. It's just like, you know, you're not having to deal with anyone else. It's just you and the player, and you're you're making this collaborative thing together, and there's interpersonal things you have to worry about. As a GM, you don't have to worry about balancing time, you know, between all the players, which I know, like, everyone struggles with that. Yeah. You know, you hate it when the phones come out or, <laughs> you know... <laughs> The side conversations start. It's like, okay, I know you're 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 bored, but I need to finish this scene, or we got to resolve this skill check, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, that just doesn't happen because there's only one other person, you know. Yeah. And if you're into GMing for the storytelling aspect of it, it just goes so quickly because there's no players discussing what the right move is. There's no conspiracy theorizing. It's just one person. They get all the input they want. They ask their questions. They make a decision. You move on. I was going to save this little tidbit for our dead in the water discussions for heroes, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you another <laughs> scoop. I'm going to give you another scoop. Matt and I actually ran act two of dead in the water <laughs> for fun. Okay. And I won't, I won't give away too much. I'm going to, I'm going to tease this so that you have to go listen to the heroes episode about this, but let me just put it this way. He got through the whole thing in two hours from top <laughs> to bottom, two hours. And part of that is because Click is insane. Yeah. You know, if we have time on the other discussion, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate. But part of it is that, well, there's only two people. You don't have, it. just, things go quickly. We just, yeah. we just flew, we just kind of walked through it. And he went from droid rebellion to killing TJ-11 in, like, no time. <laughs> Having that sort of quick uh, back and forth, I could really see it. And, yeah, doing Heroes the way that happened... That's just sort of the way that things worked out. And yeah, having more people is slower. But you do get the different perspectives. Like yeah, it's absolutely. Trade-offs. Yeah, I mean I, I have a lot of fun doing heroes. It's a it's a but it's a very different experience for me. 
Actually, I had a conversation with Ross about this. I was like, it just feels slow. Like, A, because you're not GMing. And, you know, I'm you felt this, the difference between GMing and playing. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just like, wow, there's like nothing to do. Like, you don't have to do that much on the player <laughs> side. But it was also the speed. I was just like, wow, it's like a lot of sitting around because you got to wait for the other's turn. And, and Ross was just kind of like, well... You don't have to usually deal with that because there's only two of you. I'm like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I hadn't really thought of that before. <laughs> I get what both you and Ross are saying. Like, I try and make things faster, but some of it's just the nature of the beast of having five people at a table. Yeah, and I don't I don't fault you for it at all. I think you do a great job of balancing who's doing what and making sure everyone gets spotlight time. I think you do that expertly. It was just kind of a weird... And again, it's like more my inexperience with role-playing games. I think the very first time I had ever played as a player with a group was the Season 4 Dice for Brains pregame. <laughs> uh, yes. I had never done it before that. So it was just sort of like, like, wow, I don't, I don't, I'm really kind of out of my depth here. It was like, I think the first four or five episodes of Heroes we recorded was a big learning experience for me. Like a very big learning experience for me, so... I appreciate you putting up with me. I was just like, wow, this is very different. I don't know what I'm doing. Well, from the other point, and I know that this is going to come up in the Piero's discussion whenever that happens, you've also been pushing me to be a better GM. Without you, I wouldn't have been doing the voices that I do (laughs) as much as I have been. Because you're going for the story, you're not going for the combat, which has been very refreshing. Thank you. Oh, You're looking for other interesting ways to end combats or sidestep combats, which is interesting and fun for me. And also something that I'm starting to look towards seeding other methods of solving things. I think, you know, what's interesting, as much as I love Fantasy Flight, I think the combat isn't entirely 100% balanced. Let me put it this way. To me, it's too balanced. Like, it it spends a lot of time trying to be balanced. Mm. I don't think, for me, that's what Star Wars is about. I don't think it's about, like, realistic odds. You know, there's, like, a big fan push these days about, you know, stormtroopers should be super competent soldiers. It doesn't make sense that the Empire would have so much control of the galaxy if they were all, like, missing their shots. And then there's that, you know, that image that floats around the internet a lot about, oh, well, you know, the reason the stormtroopers missed their shots on the Death Star was because it was all a trap and they're supposed to, you know, they had orders to miss, you know, that thing. The best theory I've heard about that one is, at least for First Order troopers, Uh is they can either shoot or have training on personal spaces. So you've got Finn, who is just going to hug, grab, or whatever you, but can shoot, and then all the other ones who are going to give you your nice personal space. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't heard that one. That is really interesting. It's, to me, stormtroopers should be cannon fodder. Like, just plain yeah. and simple, they should die. And, you know, my argument lately ha- has been, if you watch Rogue One, which I was just re-watching, there's a scene in Jeddah where Jin walks by, you know, runs by a stormtrooper, shoots him in the leg, and just keeps running, right? Yeah. And essentially, if you were to stat all that out, she'd be probably shooting with a light blaster, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. a very big gun. And so if, in order to have crippled him, you know, in order to have rolled that, you'd have to roll... She would either had to, like, jackpot it on successes or got a triumph or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. To give some advice, something we're going to do for Season 2 
we're going to try out is we're going to not have minions have soak. Okay, I can see that. We're just going to get rid of soak, which I know will be controversial for some people. And I actually think certain rivals I don't think are going to have soak. Yeah, I can see that. Like, to me, it doesn't make sense, like, your spaceport administrator should be able to take a blaster bolt and just kind of shrug it off. You know, it's like, he's a pencil pusher wearing a silk shirt, he should die if you shoot him. Or or get critically injured. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, I, I think for people that would say, well, well, how do you balance combat? Just put more stormtroopers. Yeah, it's... The nice thing about playing from the rebellion side is that you can just kind of limitlessly add stormtroopers and it still makes narrative sense. You know, there are just so <laughs> many does. more stormtroopers. And so, I think for me, combat will feel more satisfying if you... If you're, you know, your single success with a blaster is going to take down one stormtrooper per shot rather than say, well, you mostly got one, <laughs> you know, and then there's only three left rather than say, I'd rather say, oh, you killed one and injured another one and there's seven left, you know, like mathematically it's going to work out the same, but it will feel more cool that you're killing more stormtroopers. That sounds like a fairly cool way of doing it. To go back to your point about, like, avoiding combat, I really learned that from Matt, which Matt is a master power gamer. (laughs) In fact, I've mentioned this before, I let him pick out, like, equipment for Matu, because I'm not great at power gaming. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm like, here, uh, I've got this many experience. I mean, I kind of ignored him when I went and made him Force-sensitive, but I'm like, I've got... This much experience and this many credits, what should I do? And he'll be like, do this, 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 and that. And then it, it's worked out so far. Okay. To his credit, he doesn't power game with click. He he has his concept for the character, and he follows that concept forever. So, for example, what he always brings up is click constantly tries to talk his way out of problems. His social roles are garbage. He never upgrades them. <laughs> never. It's always like, oh, right, that was a deception. Uh, you have two green. <laughs> <laughs> Even though every other is either a lie or a charm, I think he does have ranks and charm, but everything else, negotiation, deception, coercion, like they're all just base because he never upgrades them, even though he does it all the time. But what I've noticed is even though Click's a pretty good shot, uh, you know, he's got, I think, five agility by the time you get to the end of the season. So with, with dedication, he's up to five agility. So he hits most of his blaster shots, but... What he does by nature, because the Silhouette Zero character has very little (laughs) health, you know? I think his wound threshold is like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. So you you can't really stand your ground and fight, which reminded me kind of like the episode where you were talking with Becca and um, Tess, you know, about how do you get your characters to move around? Well, don't give him any health. They'll move a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Give you that, yeah. You know, he cannot stand it. He doesn't have any armor. He doesn't have any defense. It's just like, he's a pilot. He's got to basically fly away or run. Mm -hmm. So what Matt tends to do is he doesn't fight enemies. He fights the environment. Okay. Which is kind of a tactic that I've been using with Matu to some degree. Like, for example, when he ejected the the astromech out of the (laughs) Y-Wing. Yeah. We could have had him crawl, like, land the Y-Wing, crawl up, and then hack and slash his way through, but that probably would have taken longer. Yeah. So there's sort of a loophole in the system, it being so narrative-driven, and with, you know, the advantage triumph system, which is, if you attack the environment, you typically have an easier time than if you just try to, like, straight-up fight them. 
that sort of brings to mind one of the stories I heard from Jay Little, the guy who designed the system, uh-huh. was I think it's actually for the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game, which was sort of the prototype for the Star Wars one. Right. And what appears to be Genesis. They were in a castle, like in the front antechamber with staircases going up and shields on the walls, the very high-class type medieval castle. And all of a sudden, like, goblins break in the front door, or orcs. Mm -hmm. Guy decides to go to one of these displays with the cross swords and the shield, yanks one of the swords out of there, hoping that it's actually sharp, grabbing the shield, throws the shield down at the top of the stairs, jumps on it, (laughs) tries to hack an orc at the bottom of the stairs, after surfing down like Legolas. Right. (laughs) So, Guy asks, can I do that? It's like, sure. This is your difficulty. And because you're doing all this crazy stuff, it's upgraded this way. And if you can do that in a system, which is what I try and do with my GMing, and Mm -hmm. what I'm definitely hearing with you on Silhouette Zero, take the intent of what the role is and go for it. I think for sure this system almost encourages you to do that with the way that the combat works. Whereas I feel like something like Pathfinder, where... If you wanted to drop, like, a chandelier on a guy, there's a table for how much damage that <laughs> chandelier would do. Yeah. It almost discourages you from doing it, because you look at the numbers, you go, oh, well, I could do way more damage if I just hit him with my sword, so I'm going to go hit him with my sword, you know? Yeah. On the other hand, in this system, if you are able to get them to go over the side of one of those walkways without a railing, <laughs> oh, jeez, that is the most deadly thing ever. I never really understood the falling damage thing. It was like, it's so random in the rest of the system. Like, by the way, here's really specific rules. Whereas there are no rules for how do you calculate damage if you run someone over with a speeder bike? There's no rules for that. And that drives me crazy. Even the rules for crashing in, like two speeder bikes crashing into each other. It's weird. It's like, yeah. they do a minor crit or they do a major crit. It's like, Right. The amount that you have to do to actually destroy a vehicle by ramming it is surprisingly a huge amount. Yeah, and those are instances where I'd figure there'd be really specific rules, but there aren't. <laughs> well, it's kind of going back to, okay, does this make narrative sense? Yeah. The way on Silhouettes Era I've heard you use the rules and the way that I've tried to interpret them with heroes in other places is the rules are the start of the uh, decision tree, not the end. Hmm. And that's kind of where it feels like with Pathfinder, it feels like the rules are closer to the end of the how do things happen instead of the beginning. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, I've got two possibly simple questions. Sure. What drew you to doing the Star Wars role-playing game? Oh, gosh. Ben, my love of Star Wars is so deep. You don't understand. <laughs> I, I talked a little bit about this on the Heroes cast introduction podcast that we did like that bonus episode okay yeah where we were we kind of getting to know each other which was that like i felt like star wars for a very long time was just something i did by myself and with matt like that was it i didn't know any other star wars fans okay i know that seems impossible to to realize in this day and age but you have to realize that i grew up in the 90s there was nothing there was nothing there was either comic (laughs) books which I read some of, but I wasn't a massive comic book fan back then. Yeah. Or they were extended universe novels. So if you wanted more Star Wars, you had to read, which most people don't want to read. (laughs) But 
um, one of the rules in my house growing up was my mom said, like, over the summer, you have to read. I don't care what you read. You just got to read something. Okay. And so I would go to the library and I would just check out endless, endless lists of extended universe novels. Okay. I think there was a point where I had read all of them. <laughs> I I never got into the Yu Zhong Vong thing. Like I stopped reading them probably right when those were coming out. But oh, like you know, yeah. the Young Jedi Knight series, I read all of that. You know, I read so the good KJA. Yeah, yeah, all the, all the Kevin J. Andersons, all the Michael Stackpoles, like the entire Rogue Squadron and Wraith Squadron mm-hmm. series. I read all of those. I read I Jedi with Corrin Horn, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so it was just sort of this thing that I occupied myself by myself for a very long time. I mean, there were video games, but you played video games by yourself, you know? So it was just like, oh, more Star Wars that I can play with Matt. It was just kind of like for us going back to the backyard and using super soakers and, and baseball bats for blasters and lightsabers. And But, you know, we could do it with this interesting dice system and... It had stats. Matt loves stats. And I got to tell a Star Wars story. So I think, like, to me, it was just a deep love of Star Wars and this system that was going to treat Star Wars right. Okay. That's what it felt like when I heard it. It was like, yes, this system has got this interesting, you know, I didn't know what this is what it was called at the time, this fail forward mechanic of Mm -hmm. advantage and threat. But that seems like it can it can treat Star Wars correctly, at least you know in my own personal vision of what Star Wars should be. Which I realize, like in the past few years, it's it's kind of I joke that I'm kind of like an old man, like telling like get off my force lawn. People's interpretations of Star Wars, even in, within the canon universe, is sort of kind of drifting away from something that was solidified in my teens. And so I guess like Silhouette Zero is my way to share. This is how I view Star Wars. This is how I feel like things are should be in this balance. And I don't know. I guess that's that's why I do it. It's also fun. That last is sort of the big part. Right. I put on Twitter recently, and I absolutely stand by it. The one rule of being a GM, the one sort of baseline is everyone at the table has to have fun. Other than that, like rules, whether you get them right or wrong or whatnot, that's secondary. If everyone's having fun, then you're doing enough right. I actually mentioned to Matt the other day, I wish I didn't know the rules as well anymore. Like, <laughs> because, like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, on our first campaign, we were just sort of cobbling together rules. And we had a whole thing. One of the primary plot points for the Feinsman was that, you know, in canon, Gand Feinsman are probably Force-sensitive. Yeah. But, you know, the Gand are so disparate from the rest of galactic culture that they don't really care or, or are interested in that, <laughs> even though there are have been some Gand Jedi. And so one of the primary characters that the Gand character Hyland interacted with was this Twi'lek fringer named Arl. And her background story was that she was a, a, a very young Padawan when the 66 went through. And then she just kind of lived on the edge of the galaxy, just mostly in fear. Like, her entire life had been dedicated Mm -hmm. to hiding. And so, as Hyland was becoming aware that they both had an ability that was similar, because she was Force-sensitive, he was Force-sensitive, and he was understanding what that meant, he spent a lot of time training her in the way of the Feinsman, which, of course, there are no rules for. So, you know, we had this, and I really wish I had written it down, but we had this series of rules, like, how do you 
teach someone else in in the game without just giving them experience and upgrading their skill. So, like, I had this whole thing, like, depending on how many successes and advantages you rolled, you could actually raise her ranks in a skill. Okay. If you had these great, like, training sessions that were rolled and RP'd and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, with, with you know, blues and blacks getting tossed in for, for you know, advantages and threats. and The resulting RP session would actually result in, okay, now Arl has an extra yellow in that skill because of the way you taught her. Nice. But I don't know... If maybe I would be willing to do that now, but when you're in complete ignorance, you just do whatever <laughs> the heck you want, you know? Yeah. There's another great show I want to give a shout out to. It's by the people at fandible.com. It's F-A-N-D-I-B-L-E. There's another two-player Fantasy Flight show they do. The DM, Angela Craft, I've been talking with. Actually, Jeff Stormer, who I mentioned earlier, was the one that kind of got us connected. And she does a Force and Destiny campaign with her husband. If you like Silhouette Zero, you would definitely like it. If you only kind of like Silhouette Zero, I would check it out because her take on how to run a two-player game is a little bit different than mine, and I think it's really interesting. And their story is, you know, it's it's about a, a, an Inquisitor. Like, it's a dark side Inquisitor who's pretty powerful, and this this kind of story of him coming to terms with his past is really good. Okay. But, you know, what gave me thought about it is the first few episodes, they're not really that comfortable with the rules. Mm. Uh, and so they make all of these interesting judgment calls, which you would know, like, as an experienced GM, you're like, well, that's wrong. But it's also <laughs> kind of cool. You know, like, there's a part in the first, I think it's the first or second episode where he's doing a lightsaber check to stab a guy who's, like, on his knees and facing the wrong way. Well, we know as experienced GMs, that's against two purple because all melee checks are against two purple. Okay, sure. And you would say, well, because he's kneeling down, facing away, you'd probably add a blue, right? Because it's like you're at an advantageous position or maybe even upgrade it if you felt like, you know, it was it was warranted. But she just goes, nah, it's one purple because it's easy, (laughs) you know, and it's like, oh, I wish I were that uncomfortable again because you make more interesting calls i i absolutely get what you're saying the thing that just like kind of like you were talking about at the beginning of the episode sort of calling out difficulties the thing that i'm sort of mentally calling out with that is why roll yeah that's also a possibility (laughs) like for me i'm to the point of you have a subdued enemy if you're gonna put a lightsaber through him while you're standing behind them they're gonna dodge how right if there isn't a reason for them to do the dodge yeah and i think that was something i it took me a while to learn to do i think you hear it if you're going through the whole catalog of silhouette zero it's probably the mid-20s where there was a whole series where i was really just trying to matt was just so good at slipping out of stuff he just and (laughs) just he's just so good at it and click is good at it too and so like there was just a whole part where I got a little bit rules lawyery because I was just trying to trying to stop him, <laughs> you know. No, I I go I get that. He he was the one that brought it to my attention. Actually, something they do really well in campaign is like sometimes when there's a shot that just that should just be shot and you hit it, they just do it. And I was like, you know what? That's true. You're right. There were certain calls. Even when I was editing it later, I was like, you know what? I shouldn't have even had a difficulty. It should have just happened. Yeah. That was me being insecure, going, like, I can't stop him. Like, this this was too easy for him. And me trying to use the rules to slow him down. Mm-hmm. 
and I think there's a there's a set of episodes. I think it starts with uh, Meet Wink. I don't remember which one exactly. Where I finally figured out, like I finally caught him, and it was because I switched my mindset on how to do it. It wasn't by <laughs> making things more difficult. It was by creating a trap that could could not help but fall for. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And then I was like, okay, now now I get it. You know, it took me about <laughs> twenty episodes to be like, okay, now I understand that that lesson. It was I was telling a bad story. Now I'm telling a better story, and now it's going to be even better because I know he's so good at getting out of stuff. I've got him in such a tight spot that watching him get out is going to be even more interesting. Kind of drawing to the end of the episode here, and the one thing I was wanting to mention is Doing Tales have had a few people come to me saying, me and my friend are wanting to roleplay the game. How do we do it? And I've been so happy to know of Silhouette Zero to point them to because... In some ways, I'm sort of the old guy at the role-playing table. Like, Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for, I don't want to say, but almost 25 years now. Wow. So, I've gone through with, like, the standard four-person party for ages. Mm -hmm. So, it's like, I'm out of experience for it. And the one or two times when I've stumbled to try and do it, it was on different systems that didn't quite work well. Having Silhouette Zero so that I can put someone like the Rebel Fleet HQ that, amazingly enough, is local to me. Is um like being able to say, go check out Silhouette Zero. They do it. You do it well. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think for other two-player resources, definitely Party of One podcast, Jeff Stormer. The guy is very passionate about this idea that you can play any system with two players. So, you know, if you're sitting there and you want to, you know, you're listening to this now, and you're like, I want to do this, but my friend doesn't know how to play. They only play know how to play D anD. He he's got you covered. And like I said, Angela and Billy from Fandible, they do it. Their show is called Solo Shot. It, I think, comes out on Thursdays. They do the same system, but it's a little bit of a different take. Her, like, helper PCs are a little bit more in the background. So if, if you're not comfortable, like I am, but with just juggling 8,000 <laughs> characters in your head, she's a great example of showing you how you can still drive the story fill in your skill gaps, but really just let the one player kind of make all the decisions. Um, I I think she's really good at doing that. Because her two support characters, there's an astromech and like a, what's that thing called? The human replica cyborg. Okay, yeah. Like Guri. Yes, exactly. Like Guri. And so, you know, they're emotionless, both of them. Um, so they don't have opinions on anything. They just have, they follow orders. <laughs> But she still manages to, like, drive forward. But if, you know, there's a skill that, you know, the player just can't do, then, you know, you've got these two very highly equipped droids that can can cover it for you. So if you're looking for more perspective, um, other than that, I would just say just try it, you know? Yeah. Toss out rules that don't make sense, because remember, a lot of the rules, especially for combat rules, they're made to keep a full party balance. And if you're not into all that bookkeeping... I would even say something I was kind of toying with would be, you know, take a combat system like the clocks from something like uh, like Apocalypse World or um, what's that game I was playing? Oh, Blades in the Dark, where instead of getting down to the minutia of counting all your blaster damage and stuff like if that's not your thing, just say, oh, you got a success, then you, you, you kill them. You got it. Yay. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people get turned off by two-player playing because there's not enough time to do all the bookkeeping. 
you know <laughs> it's like well usually i do my bookkeeping when someone else is saying something you know yeah or especially if the gm's got like all this other stuff to do and now you've got to do even more work on top of it <laughs> but i would say try it you know like can't hurt and a lot of people do it now and i'm glad we can be an example for that um and if you try it tweet me man I, i'm i'm always curious to see how other people come up with solutions to stuff and i'm still learning i'm still improving and i'm still willing to try new things so Shaking my head at my two engineers pulling the auxiliary levers for hyperspace, the Purgle shoots out of the Star Destroyer's hangar bay. Well, okay, we're in hyperspace now. You two can finish off this poodoo argument you've been having. I need both ships up and running at the same time when we get back to Portuga. Oh, it'll be done, Captain. And maybe while we're there, we can offload some useless Imperial cargo. I agree. I'm sure we can find a cargo container small enough for you to fit in. Find out how this wraps up in the next tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and I'm at Deuterium Ice. And I'm at Sil Zero Chris, that's spelled S-I-L-Z-E-R-O, and you can find the show Silhouette Zero at SilZero.Podbean.com, or wherever you get podcasts. We're at TheHydeanWay.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about in the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way, starring me, Matsu Ordo. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at tales at com, and we're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash Way. Okay, here's the other idea, is maybe the Purgle's been captured while the hyperdrive's down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we pull a hand Solo. Oh, yeah. Because I'm pretty sure there wasn't anything left of that ship after the Falcon jumped out. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Well, I'm, I'm more going off of the Rebels hyperspace jump that Hera does in the trailer. I don't have cable anymore. I haven't caught... I think I saw one season of Rebels, and that's it. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on anymore. Just for this, they're doing cool scenes, and they've got Hera going to hyperspace, but the star path goes through a space station. So everything in the hangar that she jumps through just gets destroyed and shoved out. Oh, jeez. Some of us are interpreting as her being an amazing pilot, other people are just getting annoyed because, well, oh, look, there's another impossible thing you can do in hyperspace because people don't have fun. I think it was Kat on one of the One Shot podcasts that mentioned that it would be cool if there were like an Astro Gator job class that did cool hyperspace tricks like that. Because like, if mm -hmm. you think about Han, it's like, well, like his, his claim to fame, whether people <laughs> 12 parsecs, right? So it's like, was he really good at hyperspace? Because, like, he mapped a faster route in hyperspace. Also, he jumped from a docking platform. Also, he stopped right before, you know, the Starkiller base. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Is his true piloting skill not flying in space, but flying through hyperspace? <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, that's been my new interpretation. I'm like, oh, I get it. He's really good at hyperspace. Like, that's pretty cool. Between that, I've started to use astrogation as sort of survival in space. 
Oh, that's an interesting idea. Okay, you can plot courses, but what else can you do? And sometimes it's you're able to go through difficult terrain by doing a survival check instead of just sort of taking the planet and moving it into stellar. Mm. Like, you've got a few other skills where it's sort of like, this is one side, this is another side. Yeah. Kind of like uh, streetwise. Right. No, I like that. I like that. On the other hand, I also had an entire martial art system based around starfighter combat. Oh. Like, all the space combat crud that no one remembers and weirds out so many people. Right. I had an entire martial arts system based around that. Like, just melee combat that. Oh, interesting. Because I still have it locked in my head as Starfighter combat, space combat, is melee. Hmm. It's just the ships being in melee. That makes sense, because, I mean, everything's pretty much short range anyway, right? <laughs> like, the way they define short range. Basic difficulty on everything is two. It's average. So, what other things like that? Average. Melee. Uh... I just sort of tacked everything onto it, and then I started coming up with... How do I envision this stuff working on a personal scale? Then I got the whole Rancor slash Silhouette Zero thing going for Star Destroyer versus TIE Fighter. Right. That's how it made sense in my head. 